Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. On today's show is a guest that I've been looking forward to for quite some time, Gage, Gage, Gabe Echezabel. I knew I'd mess it. I messed up the easy part. Anyway, he uh, is a uh, senior music correspondent with Creative Loafing, as Ray Roa has deemed him. He is a, a music encyclopedia. He worked uh, previously at Vinyl Fever and has had uh, all sorts of different incantations of his involvement in the local music scene. He's an amazing uh, person to be uh, friends with on Facebook. If you're not, I highly recommend it. Every day, is, he's good for five or six pieces of trivia that even I don't know about. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's an so, honor. Uh, well, uh, I've been, I've been, I know we've been talking about it for a while, and then this whole pandemic came down the pike and kind of slammed the brakes on us. But uh, are you at work right now, or are you working from home? How's what's going on? I am working from home four days a week. I'm going into the office one day a week. Okay, but this happens to be a day off for me, so I have a free day today. And what is the office for you right now? What are you doing? Uh, I'm an HR manager with the clerk of the circuit court's office. Are you really? Yep. Downtown. Downtown. God, how did I not know? Well, then you're the perfect guest. You're both law and music. You've, you've, you've got all the boxes checked off. So uh, I didn't even I didn't even realize that. So what is it that you're doing for the clerk? Uh, I'm one of the managers in the HR department. Okay. Yeah. So hiring, firing, managing yeah, complaints, that sort of stuff. Recruiting is kind of my forte, but um, I do a little bit of everything. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been doing that for I've been there. This will be ten years. Really? Yeah. God, how did I? I had no idea. Yep. Yep. You know what? It's funny because I've always thought you were familiar to me, apart and aside from seeing you on Facebook, and I probably walked past you constantly at the courthouse. Well, you... I remember you from the record store. You used to come into the. Record I did. Store. I did. Well, it's I had I had the CD collection that I actually bought twice because one time it got stolen, so mm. I had to re. You probably have run into that sort of scenario when you were working at Vinyl Fever every week. So I used to have, I went to UCF, and this was back when you would have those giant binders full of CDs that you'd keep in your car. And I had one of those little sliding windows on the back of my F-150, and someone just boop, poked it right out, reached in, grabbed it, and I was like, I have to buy all this shit again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was common. Yeah, me. yeah. And we, then uh, we got to, excuse me, we got to the point where um, people were getting so lackadaisical about it, the thieves were coming in with stacks of CDs that were in pillowcases. Oh, my God. Come on. I know where you just came from. I'm not buying any of that now, stuff. Did you, now, you guys like pawn shops have to do fingerprints or take IDs or do any of that stuff when you were working there? We didn't have to. We took IDs. Okay. We didn't do fingerprints. I mean, that was kind of still, I think, sort of in its infancy. That was more geared towards pawn shops. Right. Which, you know, there was a gray area as to whether we fit into that criteria or not. Luckily, we never had to do that, but we did always take IDs, and we did always, you know, if we were suspicious about something, which you can't always judge a book by its cover, but, you know, if a 15-year-old kid is coming in with the entire Captain Beefheart. Yeah, probably, probably not a lot of 15-year-olds. are. you know, yeah. <laughs> um, not to say it hasn't happened before, but, sure. you know, we, we would kind of, we were keen enough to know that this might not be on the levels. So. Right, right. Well, and then, so, not too, too long ago, we renovated a room of our house, which, up until that point had been somewhat of a storage for all of my CDs. And finally I boxes upon boxes, took them in and just said, whatever you want, buy them, whatever you don't want, trash them, put them in the bar, you know, whatever. And I have been fighting tooth and nail to not 
get into the vinyl world, and I think it's slowly sinking its claws into me because I know what'll happen. It'll uh, just be a time suck, a money suck, and all oh. these things. But it's it's amazing. So I'm you, if you go in my office, you'll see that it's already the it's already taken hold a little bit. But I'm trying to go slowly and just just do records that really mean a lot to me. Well, I'm a bad influence. Yeah, if yeah. you're looking for somebody to not take you down that road, don't ask my opinion because I'll <laughs> I'll lead you down it and I'll tell you to be there. <laughs> well, and it's so scary. Right? What's ha- do you still are you still in contact with Vinyl Fever? I mean, do you still talk to those guys or Yeah, yeah, pretty regularly. I mean, uh, a couple of the the guys that I worked with for a long time are still in town. So yeah. we still get together. Uh, the store did close down in 2010. The, um, the Tallahassee location closed as well. They closed right before us. But, uh, but yeah, what I did was um, I started a Facebook group just called Vinyl Fever Alumni. Right. And it's for everybody who ever worked that I could possibly find on Facebook. I invited every person. I mean, I racked my brain. Right. I just tried to think of these hundreds of people. And then I invited the folks in Tallahassee because I invited them to. And I said, hey, add people from your store, too. So we have a group of, gosh, I want to say it's about 350 people. And, I mean, it's not active every day, but every once in a while somebody will post something that will get just a ton of traction because right. it will spark a memory in somebody's head. And it's really fun. So That's so, that's so cool. Now, um, well, there's so many different directions I could go. You know, I have coming in after you today, Tom DeGeorge, who runs Crowbar in yeah. downtown. And, you know, obviously I want to talk to him about the effect that this is having on sure. live music. But record stores as well. You know, I've been talking to Keith over at Microgroove mm-hmm. and Rob over at Planet Retro and yeah. hearing about, you know, the challenges that they're having to stay afloat when it was already a challenging thing to do when there wasn't a pandemic. So, Well, that's the first thing that came to mind was... I mean, it's already hard enough as it is. This is just, I mean, I hope these guys can survive because, you know, I'm a firm believer in the record store is the hub of culture and of it's just so meaningful for me when I was growing up, and I think it still is for a lot of people. So without those, I mean, you know, I can do without other things that, you know, aren't as vital to me. But without record stores, I, I would, it would not be good. Record stores and live music venues, uh, exactly. because, you know, that's my one release. You know, I'm a father of two children. I've got a two-year-old and a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. I run a business as an attorney, try and be a good husband, do all these other things. The one, you know, I don't play fantasy football. Mm-hmm. I don't go to Bucks games. I don't do any of this. The one kind of thing that I do is go to concerts, and uh, it's I, I can feel it in me, you mm-hmm. know, the, the lack of this. And, you know, one of the things that I was going to talk to Tom about when he comes in is... How, who do you appeal to to help the, you know, who, who do we appeal to to help record stores? Who do we appeal to to help live music venues? I know there's the National Institute, uh, National right. Live Institute Venue Association, whatever for that. Right, but right. I don't know, I, like, if you could create a solution, what would it be for the record stores? I mean, most of them don't have staff, so they're not getting payroll protection grants. Exactly. Um, you know, I don't know, small business loans, you know, again... <laughs> You know, not not to point fingers or whatever, but a lot of these are cash businesses. The taxes are not always exactly. where they need to be to be able to get these bridge loans. Right. But I really do think they are an integral part of the society and the community, as you discussed, mm-hmm. the, the value that they give to people. We need art in our world. Without that, I mean, what what is everything else? What are we fighting for, you exactly. know? Exactly. And, and see, the, 
where, well, in this case, where the record stores are at a disadvantage. To me, record stores aren't a place where you just go with a checklist, you buy what you need, and you walk out 10 minutes later. It's not like you need milk, ground, eggs, yeah. and bread. Right. You know, for me, yeah, there's always things I have in the back of my mind that, oh, I hope I find that. But to me, the hunt and being totally surprised in what I find is kind of what brings me the most joy and satisfaction. And anybody, anybody who's ever been in a record store with me knows I take a long time. I have to look at every single piece in the entire store to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, so to me, that's a destination. That's some place where I can go and easily spend three hours. Right. You know, whereas the supermarket, I want to be in and out. So record stores are in a disadvantage there because now people don't have that luxury to say, oh, let me go stroll around for three hours and see what I find. I mean, it's just it's just not realistic. So. Right. I mean, you got Keith who's posting records up mm -hmm. on Facebook. If you want this one, I'll deliver it to you or I'll ship it to you. And Rob is doing by appointment, which is great. But on his end, it stymies how much volume he can put through his business because, exactly. you know, one person for 30 minutes a pop, you maybe can get six people in there in a day, whereas you would get six people in there in 30 minutes before. Yeah, it's really tragic. I mean, it's obviously it's close to my heart because it's something I did for so long, and it's where I've spent the majority of every cent I've ever earned in my life. But it, it's just it's really tragic because it's, you know, there, like, like you said earlier, there's so many things that were already preventing this medium from really thriving. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I mean, you would walk in, or, or even when I worked at Vinyl Fever when I started, I mean, Saturday at 2 o'clock, you could not fit one more person in there. Right. I remember Carl and I, who was my assistant manager, there was one Saturday afternoon. We just kind of looked at each other. We just kind of took it all in, and we said, we've got the greatest gig in the world. I mean, there's a ton of people in here right now. We're playing the music we love. Everybody who walks up to the counter is just buying stacks of stuff. And happy to see you. Exactly. Which you is... Know? As a divorce attorney, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's not something that I get. Sure. And that's something that I've always dreamed of, is to be occupying a space where I'm bringing joy to people. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, a big, big part of what those things do, the record stores do, you know, is, is it's a joyful experience. It's part of what makes oh, life absolutely. worth living. I, I mean, the... the, the the atmosphere that we tried to promote, and I think we did a pretty good job of it, was just, you know, if you don't want to buy records, that's fine. You can just come hang out. I mean, we started, uh, when I first started, we were on Dale Mabry across from Plant High School. And this was still at a time when the kids were just coming over. They just wanted to hang out because it was a cool place. I didn't mind. Right. I mean, they weren't bothering me. They were, right. you know, sitting around listening to cool music and asking us, who is this? I mean, they were kind of soaking it all in. So... Um, and I think that that was true for a lot of our customers. I mean, we would have people who I know, they would just flat out tell you, I'm just bored. I, you know, nobody's at home. I have nothing to do. I just want to come hang out with you guys. And I said, that's totally fine. Right. I don't have a problem with that. Now, was the last location the one on Henderson? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which has become six restaurants since oh, that I time. Know. It's like an Indian burial ground or something. Every time I drive by, it's something different. Yeah, it's some different Mexican or pizza restaurant. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. So are you from Florida originally, or how did you... Originally from New York. I was okay. born in Queens. Oh, really? I uh, lived there till I was about six, and then my family moved to Providence, Rhode Island. I lived there till I was about 12, and I've been here ever since. Okay. Yeah. Now, any siblings? I have two older sisters. What was your entry point into music? How did it take hold of you? Um, well, we always had music in the house, but okay. my sisters, are, like I said, are older than me. They really love music. My mom always loved music. My mom always bought a bunch of records and stuff. Um, but for me personally, um, 
I mean, I had 45s, and I asked for 45s when I was three, four, five years old, right. stuff like that. But the first person, like Gateway, the first person that really kind of took me by the hand and, like, yanked me into this lifestyle was Elton John. Really? I mean, that was my, that was it for me. What do you, what do you attribute that to? What, you know, um, what is it that appealed to you? Well, I mean, the mute, the songs. Great lyricist. Great. I mean, well, him and, uh, what's Bernie, his? Yeah, Bernie right. I mean, just such great songs, great production. They were all over the radio when I was that age. I mean, just looking at him, and this was a day and age when, you know, we didn't have MTV. Sure, yeah. Seeing he somebody was... on TV was like a rarity. You would right. see somebody on, you know, the Dinah Shore show, and you'd be like, oh, my God, there's music on TV. Get over here. Um, so every time you saw him, he never looked the same. He never looked different. He was very intriguing. But the one defining moment in my life was um, the scene in The Who's Tommy, 1975 right. film where he does pinball wizard yeah. and he's on this huge stilt. Yeah. That was to me the equivalent of, you know, you hear a lot of people say, "Oh, when I saw the Beatles on Ed, Ed Sullivan in 64, my life changed." That was my Beatle on Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment. Well, that's that's pretty amazing. I, I have I sent you earlier today. I had this when I've got the kids to bed and my wife's asleep, I'll just go through catalogs of videos of mm -hmm. stuff and one of my Elton John things is uh Central Park, like 1981, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Mm. And the crowd is like bigger than, you know, the Pope, just bananas. <laughs> and, uh, you know, towards the end of the song, somehow, I don't even know how she did it, but some woman makes her way onto the stage and he, she, the security goes to pull her off and he turns around and goes back and grabs her and sits her right next to him oh, cool. and finishes playing the rest of the song. And uh, it's just so amazing. I mean, you, you know, I don't know that that, well, even even more so now in the midst of this pandemic, but I just don't. Will we see concerts like that again? Will I know. we see these? I mean, we're already seeing in the news the like you can't mosh, you can't whatever. Like, are we going to have these festivals? Are we going to? I have to believe at some point we will get back there, but it's scary at the prospect that maybe it is. not. It yeah. is. I mean, there, there's no. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or in six months. You know, but um, yeah, I'm I'm like you. I'm hurting right now that I haven't been to see a live show in so long, you know, and it's just like, I'm just keep hoping and stay, I'm staying hopeful that right, right, something's right. going to turn around because we need that in our lives, you know. So what came first for you? Was it writing for Creative Loafing or working at Vinyl Fever? Uh... Uh, I was working at the record store first. Okay. I started there in 1991. Okay. It was my part-time gig. I was just working um, nights and weekends while I worked my daytime job. I was working at an insurance company. And my friend Kenny was already working there, and he said, hey, they might need somebody, um, you know, for part-time work. So I said, well, find out. And one thing led to another, and I got the gig. Within six months, I got offered an assistant manager uh, job, so I got to quit my boring day job, which was like the happiest day of my life. Right. Um, but what we started doing in, gosh, I want to say in about, wow, what year was that? Maybe in early 2000s. Um, Leilani, who was the music editor at Creative Loafing before Ray, she reached out to us and she said, would you guys want to do like a weekly feature, like new releases, and maybe not just, you know, this is what's coming out, but give a little more insight, give a little bit of your Deeper own dive, flavor. Yeah. yeah. So we said, yeah, of course. So it turned out that I was the one that was doing it every week, gladly. It wasn't like a chore or a burden. I was enjoying it. So Leilani approached me one day uh, and she said, hey, I love what you do for the store. Would you want to come on board and write for us on your own, like your own separate thing. And I said, sure. And that was in, gosh, that happened in about 2009. 
And you've basically been doing some version of that since. Would that be yes. accurate? Yep. Whether it's through creative loafing or just on your own social media. Absolutely. How much time uh, does that take up for you? Not that it's a chore, it's a labor of love, but I mean, it, and, and, and how do you decide, like, are you having to research? Are these things that you just <laughs> organically kind of know? Because for those of you who don't know or aren't friends with Gabe on Facebook, every day, three, four, five, six different, you know, today in rock history or today in music history. And it's great because some of it is people you know about, some of it is people you don't, but almost without fail, it's a nugget of information that you probably didn't know. <laughs> so how is it that you kind of decide and come upon these things? Um, I do a lot of research. I mean, I do it in waves. Some days I'll do work on that type of stuff for hours. Other days, I'll only have, you know, a certain amount of time. So it's kind of an ongoing process. I can always, you know, research what happened on this specific day and kind of get my posts ready for that day. Right. Um, but really, all it is, is to be honest, is it's, it's a twofold thing. I mean, I obviously miss the record store a lot. A lot of what I miss is that interaction. I, those, what you read on my Facebook page is what I used to talk about to, my, right. to the customers. For right. Several hours a day. Oh, did you know that this guy played with this guy at this festival? You know, so this is my my way of kind of filling that void. But uh, I'll be honest. Another reason, another really strong motivator why I started doing that on my own is because I was getting really burnt out on Facebook to the point where I almost said forget it and packed it in because you know it's just people love to argue. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, I've seen people argue about you know, what the best, I don't know, hot sauce is. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. Why can't we just each have our own favorite? Yeah. Um, so that was my uh, that was my version of trying to say, you know what, I'm not going to engage in all these political posts. I'm not going to argue with you because that's not what I want to do. That doesn't appeal to me in person. I certainly don't want to do it on social media. I'm going to put something that hopefully will spark a good memory in somebody's head you know, and I love it when people respond to those posts. That's kind of what I live for. Right. Because if I post that, you know, on this day, this Talking Heads record came out, I love when people say, I saved up my allowance to, to buy, to the, buy yeah, that yeah, album. Yeah. You know, that's what I want to hear. That's what, you know. Well, I, so cool. Even today, there was the the Stones Black and Blue album that, yes. the, you know, the photograph you think you said was taken in Sanibel. Sanibel, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was looking at the faces. I, I love, uh, you know, Aftermath, Black and Blue, oh, the, yeah. looking at their faces and almost tracking the trajectory of <laughs> where they're at in their health and their age and everything else and i didn't know that it was ron wood's first album but that, yeah. that was a, a, a cool uh, side, side piece of information but if you look at uh, keith's face up in the right corner of that i mean oh. he looks like skeletor in oh that picture. gosh and i just have to th what what year would that have been was that early 80s or 75 mid oh so that was the year i was born okay yeah yeah so yeah i i don't i don't know if that's true i i started to read his bio i never got all the way through it but uh oh yeah he was that the, was kind of the height of it height of it yeah yeah still sure. a great album i mean uh, yeah, yeah i like it yeah. a lot of people trashed it it got really poor reviews and everything that killed it was the advertising campaign for it was just a nightmare because the ad was um an illustration of a woman who was tied up and had bruises all over oh, her for, yeah and that, that the headline was, I'm black and blue by the Rolling Stones, and I love it. Yeah. And that just sparked just so much. Even back then. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah, now, now you couldn't even get within a mile of no, you no. proposing that as an ad. But even though every now and again you have like H&M &H putting a little black kid in a monkey sweatshirt or something. I it's know. Just like, I how know. does that get through? <laughs> like, I who know. thought that was a good idea? But definitely. Yeah. Uh, so there's, oh, so the Rolling Stones for me hold a, uh, I mean, 
I know this is a very novel concept that the Rolling Stones hold a special part in my history. Sure. But that was the first concert I ever went to was mm. Steel Wheels at uh, the old Raymond James. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that point, they were f- well, well, well funded. And, mm-hmm. and maybe the music was kind of sliding off as far as credibility goes. But that show was just bananas. But the funny part about that show that I'll always remember was... Uh, I went with a friend of my, a, a, a girl that was in my class, her mom, she was kind of the hippie den mother mm-hmm. who, and she took me and another friend of, a friend of mine to the show, and my parents thought it was a great idea to fill up the biggest cooler you've ever seen <laughs> with Gatorades and sandwiches and snacks, and I remember they dropped me off their house, and they're like, how long do they think you're staying for? <laughs> my parents had no concept of what like tailgating before a show was and thought I was going to be in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. But were you in Tampa by that point? Yeah, or? I was at that show. You remember, oh, you were? Yeah. I camped out for two days for tickets for that show. <laughs> that was an amazing show. And right nice. around that time was The Who came through. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I remember uh, not too much longer off the, after that, I think it was The Division Bell, Pink Floyd. And yeah. those were like kind of my my first three shows were The Rolling Stones, The Who, and Pink Floyd. You know, you started at the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of everything. But but for me, you mentioned, and I've I've said this before, my moment. You mentioned was seeing Elton John on, on uh, with the Beatles. Yeah, my thing that that kind of turned me to the dark side was seeing the Butthole Surfers at the Florida State Fairgrounds. Oh, yeah, and that was that was just a you know coming from a Catholic school and mm-hmm. going to that event. It was just like. There's this whole other world that you don't know about, and that kind of set me down a dark path with music that I never fully oh, yeah. turned around from. Experiences like that open your eyes to things that you never, ever dreamed of. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, was, Gibby Haynes, you know, oh, he, yeah. you know, they were they were heavy into the psychedelics, and that show. My recollection of it, I'm hoping it's true. I'm always wanting to run across somebody else who was there, but my recollection of it is that he came out, lit his hand on fire. <laughs> had a bra on his head and started shooting beach balls over the crowd with a 12-gauge with blanks in it. That sounds and about it, right. <laughs> well, this goes back to things like black and blue that would never no, fly today. Exactly. But that was like, oh, my God, what is this world that I'm getting into? So um, so you're still writing for Creative Loafing now in some capacity, aren't you? Yes. So what, what's the frequency and what's the context of, of those articles? Um, it kind of comes in waves. I mean, uh, Ray's really good about, I think he has a good... Um, he has a good read on the type of stuff that I really like and the stuff that I... I mean, my taste is pretty wide, but I think I think even for Leilani and definitely for Ray, I'm the guy who, you know, maybe if there's not somebody else to take on a certain assignment, like interviewing... Um, who was it I just recently interviewed? Um, you know, interviewing like Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. Yeah. I don't know that a lot of people in... Give it, the, you know, <laughs> give it to Gabe. He'll he'll make exactly. something of it. Yeah, and yeah. I'm fine with it. Yeah, That's yeah. fine. So it really comes in waves. I mean, there'll be times when I'll have three or four or five assignments that just kind of pop up out of nowhere, and then there'll be times where I go a month and a half with nothing. So it it, it really varies on you know. Right now, I haven't done a whole lot of interviews, obviously, because we don't have a, you know. And I had a too. bunch of them lined up, which is such a bummer. Bummer. For people who sure. Are coming to town. Uh, so so it really varies, you know. And, and I'll reach out to him. If I feel really strongly about something, he's very receptive to that. Like Saturday morning, as soon as I woke up and I heard that little Richard had passed away and I just was, yeah. I was just beside myself, I instantly got a hold of him and said, hey, I need to write something. And he said, absolutely, do it. So within a couple of hours, I had it written, edited, sent it to him, and it was published. So 
things like that are not uncommon, and he's very receptive to those. It, it, I know, I know, it's not the case, but it's just been a tough. Like I'm trying to go back, but you know, Bowie was oh. a tough one. Um, Prince was a tough one. You know, uh, who else? Lemmy, obviously. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm waiting for Ozzy to go at any minute. Oh, you know, gosh, but uh, there's been. A, I know I'm missing like 20 different people, but it just seems like uh, you know Chris Cornell. Like in the past five or six years, it's oh, just been giant after giant in my world going yeah. so uh you know I, I guess it's just you get to a certain age and your your childhood heroes kind of start to yeah it, i mean it's inevitable i'm not gonna sit here and act like i'm so naive it's inevitable it's gonna happen you just aren't prepared for it and the thing that hit me so hard about bowie which is you know he's one of my absolute heroes is you know he was on this he, he had just released he was just released an album that was amazing his best album in right. many many years yeah, yeah. You know, he seemed so uh, re-energized, and we got so excited about that, and then it's like, oh, by the way, he died, you know, and that was just, I just did not see that coming at all. And and you may be able to confirm this, but my understanding was, is he kind of knew it was coming. He did. And it wasn't making it known, so going back and listening to those last two albums that he put out, I don't know if the earlier of the two albums, the one that looks like the Heroes cover... Uh, Oh, the next day. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if he knew that then, but the, on the last one, I know that he did. Oh, and yeah. It gives a whole different context and depth to the lyrics of the songs that he's singing. Oh, I, I still get choked up when yeah. I listen to him now, knowing that he knew that yeah. that was coming. You know, yeah. Just, wow. Yeah. So, uh, in preparation for day, I we kind of discussed an assignment. I don't mm -hmm. know how far you got with it. I didn't get as far as I hope to get with it. So maybe we'll just use yours more as a talking I did point. I brought okay. my homework. Okay. So we had talked about, uh, do we do we agree on seven? I did seven groups, but I think for the individuals, I think I did one more. I think okay. I might have done eight, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Okay. So uh, I don't know if we called it the, the seven most important or the seven most important to us, bands, individuals, that sort of thing, how it was that we couched it. but Well, and you did something interesting, which I was glad you did. You kind of said, you know, not counting the obvious, you know, we're not well, going right, to the Beatles, the Stones, yeah, 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 the, you know. Yeah. Or, no, I shouldn't say that because I did include them. You said the Beatles, the Stones, or who else did you say? I think you might have said Pink Floyd to just There's always the big ones, yeah. Consider. Yeah. So with that in mind, I mean, those are given. I mean, sure. We probably all feel that way about those guys. Do you, I don't know if you know Mark Marin. Uh, he mm -hmm. does a podcast, and he's really into music. And he had a brilliant thing that he said. He said, the Beatles are Christmas carols. <laughs> you know, which in a way, I mean, everybody from age 10 to 100, you know, you start, I want to hold your hand and sure. everybody knows the lyrics to it as much as they do Jingle Bells or Rudolph, you know, whatever the thing may be. So I, those bands that we're talking about, I call those Christmas carols. Yeah, those are just exactly. ones that everybody can agree on. They're not up for debate. I'm totally, I'm totally fine with that. All right. That's, you know. So let's, let's, let's go through it one by one and have a conversation. Okay, and this is in no specific order. This is just as they came to me talking about bands that I think are highly important, influential. Um, I just kind of jotted them down as they came to my head. I want to take each one and kind of okay, sure. cook on them. Uh, the first one I said was the band. Okay. Uh, just so obviously uh, Bob Dylan's band... You know, and then they went out on their own yes. and kind of became their whole other thing. There's a brilliant Martin Scorsese documentary oh, about the them. Yeah. Uh, Robbie Robertson. Mm -hmm. uh, is it Levon? Levon Helm. Helm. Who else? Rick Danko. Okay. Uh, Richard Manuel. Those all four of the well, three of those guys: Danko, uh, Levon Helm, and Richard Manuel all shared vocalist vocals on the albums. 
And I'll tell you, those are three of the best vocalists to me of all time. To have those three guys in one band is like total. Uh, the breadth, uh, for sure. Oh, man. For sure. You know, there's bands that do that. I'm not, by no means am I comparing one of my favorites, Mastodon, to. Mm -hmm to uh the band but in that band they have three different vocalists yeah. troy sanders um brent hines and then uh bron daler mm -hmm. and when their albums come out you know it, it, it's like having three albums in one exactly. in, in a lot of ways so that's brilliant about it but aside from that what what did that does that bring back a time for you or bring back a memory or uh, the band was really important to me because like i said i had two older sisters and the year that the film that you mentioned, The Last Waltz, came out, the documentary about their last ever concert on Thanksgiving night of 76, that film came out in 78, and my sister, who's 10 years older than me, was really into them. I mean, she was, like, way into them. And um, we had a bunch of little, you know, funky little art house theaters around Providence, around kind of the artsy uh, areas, and they were all showing it. You know, not it wasn't like a really a multiplex type of movie. It was more like an art house movie. Right. And... We, you know, my family, we have a tendency to be very obsessive. I mean, I definitely share that gene. So you get that from your family? Oh, God, yes. Okay. Absolutely. Um, we, my sister went and took me to, to see that film six times. Um, and, you know, this is, you, you got you to gotta, uh, keep in mind, this is the first time I had seen and heard live performances on film, no doubt. But, you know, Van Morrison, uh, Dr. John, yeah. Lou Harris, Joni Mitchell, Mavis Staples. I mean, people who are giants, giants to me right, right now. Right. So that was such an eye-opener for me. And, you know, when you're a kid, you absorb stuff. And I was hearing all these records around my house, and I just took, a, you know, took an instant liking to them. And that was a really important group for me because, um, you know, it was something that you're 10 years old. Nobody, that, no, none of your schoolmates really are, you know, digging music from big pink and sure sure about. yeah but i was getting exposed to it that way so that was a big gateway for me too was that group were they the band that when dylan first went electric is that is yes. that the same band so i always what was that concert that like supposedly i heard pete seeger wanted to take an axe and like cut the cable and there's all this oh well, that one is it was at the newport folk festival but is that the band the same band they played with him at the famous one in um in Manchester, okay. in London, okay. where those people were just... Blown crazy. away. Well, they uh, half of them were. The other half were very vocal. Well, what's the what's the other documentary that D.A. Pennybaker... Is, not No Way Out. That's the Scorsese one, but there's another... Don't look... Oh, the Scorsese one. Well, there's Scorsese one, but oh, there's don't a... don't look back. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think, the one where he comes out on the stage there, Correct. and I can't remember what the song is that he's playing, but you look at the crowd, and they're all like, what did we walk into? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, but... A lot of history behind the band. Totally, yeah. oh, totally. All right, who's number two? Uh, well, to me, this is, you know, and I may be biased, and people might disagree, but to me, this is the most influential band of all time, is Velvet Underground. Oh, my God, for sure. You know... 100%. Um, you know, I've really, in recent history, gotten into John Cale. Mm -hmm. um, Lou Reed is always the obvious kind of person that you kind of follow from that band. Sure. John Cale kind of more of a backseat. But, I mean, you look at bands today like the OCs and all this psych rock that's kind of had a resurgence lately. And then there's actually been several waves of it since sure. then. But they definitely, in my view, encapsulated the New York, whatever it was, you know. So, anyway. Oh, it's it's just... I mean, I can't say enough about it. I'm sure everything's already been said that needs to be said. But, you know, great quote uh, from um, Brian Eno, whose birthday it is today. 
I think he said, uh, you know, only 100 people bought that first album, but every one of those people went out and started a band. Yeah, right. And not just a band that mimicked them or imitated them, but they had the freedom to make a band with no um, restrictions or no, you know, no boundaries. And that is the beauty of the Velvet Underground, was that they sparked this creativity that some people didn't even know they had inside of them. So... To me, that's just, without the Velvet Underground, I don't know <laughs> musically where we would be right now because they have so many um, disciples who've come from them, who've made the music that we all love, that we still listen to. I mean, to. they would arguably be the forebearers of independent you oh. know, rock music. And not only that, but the art movement that they were a part of with... Um, my brain is softening. Warhol. Like a, Warhol, thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, I mean, they were. It was more than just a musical scene. It was a scene, you know, a visual scene, a, a exactly. ph- philosophical scene. You know, oh, it was just hugely influential. I mean, they're the ones who planted the seed for that New York scene. That right. Brought you know. That, that was New York Dolls after them, contemporaneous yes. with mm-hmm. them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A little after. Um, uh, television. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if we're. Uh, Talking Heads were in that mm-hmm. kind of absolutely. time frame, but oh, absolutely. definitely that whole kind of uh, college of bands, mm-hmm. you know, to this day, you can just hear bits and pieces of them and all this different type of music. Oh, so wonderful. Doubt. Without a doubt. So, yeah, I, I would definitely have to include them. Um, this one might fall into the category that you mentioned was kind of not off limits, but you said was kind of obvious. I mentioned The Who. Um, I, 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 I'll allow it. Okay, okay. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and we can scratch them. No, I'll them. allow it, and I, there's a reason why. But I, I want to hear you talk about the Who. I mean, just to me, just you know, before we knew what punk rock was, they had Pete Townsend had the punk rock, uh, just the vibe and the swagger, and you know, he didn't. He wasn't the only one with the vibe and the swagger in that band. True. No, I, I mean, absolutely. Keith Moon, if if oh. you're gonna if you're gonna say the embodiment of oh. punk rock, I mean that guy was shit faced, bloody. Half his drums were knocked out over, of his head. and yeah. he he was still going at it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But but just lyrically, and you know the whole teenage angst, and you know, it, to me, nobody captured that as well as they did. Oh, that for sure. Early on, um, mix that with you know the amount of decibels that they use and, and sense of humor like oh, totally. i can't think of a band from that class with such a sense of humor and mm-hmm. just kind of an oddness about sure. them sure would you agree cuz a lot of the other bands that we've talked about is kind of off limits were a lot more straightforward mm-hmm. or on the nose sure you know uh you know to me the the beatles although not true were kind of more the innocent ones mm-hmm. the stones were kind of the darker ones oh yeah uh, you know, the who were just the weird ones, exactly. In my, in my opinion, and I love, you know, if you'll see uh, the bottom book next to you is a Wes Anderson collection, and he always oh, yeah. has such an affinity for including the British, you know, invasion type of music, and they're one of the big parts of that. So he's big on including the Kinks. With his... the Kinks, we're going to be. I don't know if you've got if you have them in there, but that I don't. Was, okay, I don't, okay. But they could easily, easily be in there. List, sure, sure, sure. Without a doubt. So. And then, you know, let's talk about Roger Daltrey, one of the absolute greatest rock vocalists ever. To this day, still. Fronting that powerhouse. I mean, that's, they're just, they're unstoppable. Is it Entwistle? Who's the bass player? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He kind of, he kind of got the short, he had three, three big personalities. But I guess that's the job of a bass player is to kind of sit in the back and keep it all tethered, you know, as much as you can. Exactly. It was hard to compete with those three. Oh, yeah. Why the try, yeah. 
I think he let his bass playing do the do the talking for him because he's he was pretty amazing. But um, next, I said the Ramones. That was you know in my adolescence that was the equivalent of my Beatles. Right. I mean those were the four guys that. How did they line up time wise with Velvet Underground? They're they're a little bit after, right? Yeah. Not Not a lot after. Yeah, I they mean, probably got started around seventy four. By that time, you know, uh, Velvet Underground was gone, and Lou was already solo. Right. You know. Um, but yes, yeah, so a little bit later. It's but. so funny because the careers of these people, you know, it, as as a younger guy looking back, you think that they were these thirty year careers or whatever. And a lot of these people, it's I like know. we had three albums over four years, and that was it. I know, I know. You know, it's I true. mean, like the Doors. I remember in high school, everybody, the Doors, the Doors, the Doors, and you know that movie came out, Olive yeah. Stone, and there was a there's a little bit of St. Pete history with mm-hmm. uh, Jim Morrison. Jim. So I remember it was this big thing. But when you go back, they weren't. I mean, how many albums did they? <laughs> oh gosh, probably not counting live albums or whatever. No. Yeah, I think there's five. Yeah, maybe, maybe. and over a pretty short period of time. Oh, three years. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Um, so the Ramones were huge for me. I mean, that was that was kind of the badge that we wore. Was you know, if you're a Ramones fan, it kind of put you in a kind of a different different group than everybody else. Where did they get their sound? Where did, did it come first in England? Did it come first in New York, the whole punk sound? I mean, I know there's, you know, everybody kind of looks back, Sex Pistols, Ramones, you know, as punk, arguably Iggy and the Stooges, which sure. would be on my list. They're on mine. Okay, good, 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 good. <laughs> um, I think that, well, the thing about the Ramones was they were always kind of the bridesmaid, never the bride. I right. Mean, they did so much, and they never, to me, they never fully got the type of accolades that they were really deserving of, um, you know, their their sound or their 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 um, their uh, idea was to take, you know, for example, the melodies and the harmonies of a Beach Boys song, and rev it up and add some real buzzsaw guitar to it, which was brilliant. Um, obviously, they were influenced by the Stooges. I yeah, mean, without a doubt. How could you not? Yeah. But you know, the thing about them is they 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 go to England. They play over there in 77, and yeah, things are happening there. I mean, you know, the Sex Pistols have already formed and have already grabbing headlines, but they go over there and they play. All these other bands kind of cop their attitude and right. their style, and they become huge. The Ramones come back, and they're still playing right. clubs and theaters, where and, and they can't get arrested because all of a sudden the, the term punk had such a negative con, uh, uh, connotation to it that, you know, although it was the hot thing in England and the Sex Pistols were supposedly, you know, throwing up on people and pissing on people and stuff like that, that was like a taboo thing over here. So the Ramones got shelved because once the record, these radio programmers and and industry guys got hold of the word punk, they were like, oh, no, we can't have that. Right, right, right. And here they are putting out their best, best work. The best work of their career. I mean, Rocket to Russia from 78 is to me one of the greatest rock albums of all time and it went absolutely nowhere, nowhere yeah which is just a crime so all right um, where are we, what number are we at now five four that was my fourth okay next i had perfect segue i went to the stooges i love iggy pop I mean, so much i mean that guy is just a that's just the embodiment of everything that's cool about rock and roll exactly music. i mean i'm sorry there's no rock and roll or punk rock front man Who's not just rehashing what Iggy did? Yeah, and I don't mean that in a derogatory. No, but way. Henry Rollins will admit to you that he got up on stage and did his best version of Iggy Pop. And you know, there's a laundry list of other people you can. I mean, one of my all-time favorite frontmen ever. You know, he's gone now, but it's Steve Bader from Dead Boys and from Lords of the New Church. 
I mean, that he he would have told you easily, this is, you know, directly. But it was directly. honoring. It but wasn't, it was. it wasn't you know, satire. It was honoring. Yeah. Well, I don't mean to say he was, you know, blatantly ripping him off. And he's still at, God, how, he lives in Florida, doesn't he? Like yeah, in the yeah. Keys or he something. He lives down south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's still, I mean, he just did that tour with Queens of the Stone Age, and he's running around doing a lot of the same stuff. Yes. I went so, up to Chicago to see Did you see it? That tour. How was it? It was amazing. Stacked band and him at oh, the front yeah. of it. Awesome. I'm a, I'm a big Josh Homme fan. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. He Iggy opened with, it's probably arguably the best live opening I've ever heard. He opened the show with Lust for Life. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm like, come on. Right, right. That's what like, people wait to the end for. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He just came out blazing with that. So, I mean, the Stooges, I mean, yeah, without the Stooges. Now, the Stooges, apart and aside from Iggy, kind of have a rich history. Now, isn't it, uh, who is, one of the band members, uh, the father was uh, old vaudeville comedian, actor. Oh, God. Um, was it the drummer? You know, I'm not sure. It's going to kill me. It's okay. going to kill me. I'll, I'll think of it after this yeah, is over, and I'll we'll text research you. research that. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway. But, I mean, the band is just amazing in and of themselves. And since then, there's been several incarnations of them. I know even at one point, Jay Maskus and Mike mm-hmm. Watt were Mike playing Watt. Yeah. the background. So, you yeah. know, there's kind of this who's who that cycle through and play play for him. And I'm sure they were thrilled to do that. Oh, I mean, that. God, that's, I mean, that's, that's an end-all, be-all for sure. Exactly. But, you know, without the Stooges, again, what, the music that we love, that's that's the Probably backbone of it exist, for sure. You know, um, direct cousins of theirs from the same scene. I went with MC Five next. Oh, for sure. Again, I mean, pick out the jams. Uh, uh, yeah. Who's who's the main guy? Uh, Wade Wade Kramer. Wayne Kramer's yeah, the yeah. guitarist. Yeah. And they're both Detroit bands, uh, yes. the Stooges and MC Five. So exactly. they kind of come from the same area. That yep. blue collar. You know, working class. Absolutely. Yeah, just they're on the same record label. Aggression. Yeah. Just, Ironically enough, they now they didn't have quite the catalog that the Stooges had, though, did they? Uh, I, I don't feel like they did. Maybe they just did the three albums, right? Okay, and then that was it. Um, but gosh, three huge albums for I sure, mean, three massive, just highly influential albums. Um, again, you can just hear the attitude and the just the, just the sweat and the guts in those records. Yeah. And, I mean, they still excite me so much. I, I, I have this. I have this. My buddy uh, is the singer and guitarist for Wolfface. Uh, mm-hmm. He's an attorney as well. So uh-huh. we we always talk about he he hates quote unquote noodling. So he's like, <laughs> I don't want to hear anybody noodling. And we always talk about, do you want someone who's good at their instrument or passionate with their instrument? Exactly. And it's always passionate. Not that MC Five or the guys in the studio just yeah. weren't, but I would rather someone who sounds like they're about to go off the rails at any moment than sure. someone who's doing this. You know. Eddie Van Halen type exactly. quote unquote noodling. So who's just basically rehearsing. Yeah, exactly. Live exactly. Time. Yeah, exactly. So MC five without a doubt. And then lastly I said, you know, one of my all time favorite bands who again, I don't think they get enough credit. I think they kinda got maybe written off or maybe, you know, there's a great scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High that that that, that exemplifies this. People kind of quote grew out of them, but Cheap Trick to me is Oh well just a pop rock you know, they're a pop sensibility to it, but they still had the chops, and yeah, there's... Absolutely, and you know, the sense of humor you mentioned, kind of that oddball sense of humor that The Who had, definitely Rick Nielsen and right. Trick. Um, you know, great songs, great hooks, great yeah. choruses. Robin Zander's my all-time favorite rock Amazing and roll singer. Amazing singer, yeah, for sure. I mean, that guy can just... I've seen them 
just so many times, but he still just slays me every time I hear him perform live. Um, just to me, a totally underrated band. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people see them kind of as uh, I can't think of the right. I don't want to say a, I don't mean a joke, but a lot of people kind of written them off because oh, that was that band that sang Dream Police, and it's like no, there's so much more behind that. I think if their career had stopped in the late 70s, early 80s, it would be different. But somehow they bled into hair metal, in my recollection. And if you were on MTV, um, was The Flame or whatever, that would be rotating with Every Rose Has Its Thorn and all these other things where I think they kind of got... Un- unfairly tainted by that world, and maybe that's what totally. you know tainted their legacy a little bit. And, and that's what the record label was was threatening them with. You right, know? you have to have a hit. Yeah, they hadn't had a quote hit. I like that song, by the way. But I'm just saying. Well, they're not fond of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at all. yeah, yeah. They felt like they were, you know, yeah. forced into doing it. Yeah, and it's funny because when on the rare occasion that they play that live, when they play it, Rick Nielsen introduces it. He says, "This song was number one, referring right. to its chart position." but we think it's number two. Right. You know, which yeah, is yeah. such a great For line. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, that was kind of not really representative of them, but my gosh, those first four albums are just... Amazing. Just not a bum track on any one of them. And to me, they're just, you know, huge... I'm loving this list. I, I can I can fully get behind this list. Awesome. Okay. Well, that was my band list. Okay. You asked me to do individuals. Okay. Let's go. So, all right. I'm going to start with the obvious. James Brown. Yes, I for mean, sure. Without James Brown, you don't have so many other people. For sure. You don't have Michael Jackson. You don't have Prince. Those are the obvious ones. But just that on stage, that shtick, that that kind of ego. It's it's almost like the heel in a wrestling match. He was playing the heel in a wrestling match. Exactly. And everybody loves the heel over the hero. And it's the exact same thing with James Brown. And that's been emulated not just in soul music, R&B music, but in rock music, arguably, if not equally, more so. So he is kind of this, uh, you can agree upon him across musical genres, Mm -hmm. you know, so I, 100%. Yeah, he's just just a cornerstone. Um, Next was, this is kind of a personal bias, but because this is my ultimate rock and roll hero, but Mark Bowen, T-Rex. Oh, for sure. To me, the whole I glam mean, thing. Yeah, that was the, the that he pl- he was the one who kicked that off. I know everybody says Bowie, which I'm not going to argue with. Did you see Velvet Goldmine? Oh yeah. What did yeah, you think yeah. about that movie? I didn't like it the first time. I felt soundtrack great. was amazing. Soundtrack's great. The movie um, was kind of a track. But I grew yeah. to like it. I mean, yeah. I was very kind of negative about it when it first premiered because the the, the, the title comes from a David Bowie B side. Right. And Bowie was involved, and then. Supposedly, he was kind of tight-lipped about it, but he removed himself from being the involvement of that project. Well, I don't know how, you know, they they definitely paint Bowie in a certain way, and I don't know if, if that was based on information that he was freely giving out or disagreed with or whatever, exactly. but I mean, they had Iggy, Iggy and Bowie kind of in bed together in every connotation exactly. of that sure. w- word, yeah. sure. So, and then the Brian Ferry kind of plays into it a little yes, bit, yes, and then yes. Mark Bolin, and then, yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyway. So, yeah, so to me, he was the one who kind of, you know, was the first one to carry that flag. Was he in Mott the Hoople, too, or is that separate? No. No, no. You, okay. No, that was Ian Hunter. Okay. Um, Mott the Hoople did, uh, they were about to break up, and then, because they were having so much 
they just weren't selling records, and then Bowie wrote all the young dudes and, and just gave it to a them. Shot of and they yeah. exploded. So that's a great story. But yeah, Mark Boland to me is just the epitome of just, and I mean this in a, an endearing way, the rock and roll poser. Right. I mean, he just has all the poses and the pouts, and he's playing the the Gibson Les Paul, and he's just got the tight, you know, sparkly. I mean, he's just he's the embodiment of what to me a rock star right, is right, right. Or was. And he's like my personal, you know, if I could be anybody in rock history, it would be that Mark would be him. Boland. So um, the next one, you know, Mark Boland's a direct descendant of, and I hate to say this one just passed away last weekend, but Little Richard, yeah, un- undoubted, undoubtedly. Um, again, you know, I, I wrote a piece for Creative Loafing last week just talking about the importance of this, you know, homosexual man in the middle of the 50s, a black man wearing makeup and this huge pompadour, who just had the audacity to come out and, you know, play Take these, it or leave it, yeah. You know, it, it, people don't realize that took a lot, lot of, of guts. guts, yeah. A lot. Um, you know, he's singing these sexually charged songs that can be taken one way or another, and, I mean, just great vocalist, great pianist, but just the attitude. I mean, just walked up there like it was nobody's business, you know, burned the house down and then just walked off. And, I mean, how many people have emulated that type of... You know, I'm going to go out there and you know, bring the house down. And I saw a great meme the other week on Facebook. It said, if you've got to walk through hell, walk around like you own the place. And exactly. It's kind of like, if you're going to be saddled with all these crosses to bear, you know, you know, bedazzle them up, swing them around, and use them, use them against the, your, Abs- your, your, you know, your accuser or your whatever, you know. So, I agree great with one. that. I agree with that. Um, next, I said Chuck Berry. Obvious. Yeah. I mean, we don't have people that we've mentioned, the Beatles, the Stones, uh, the Beach Boys, we don't have all these guys, you know, picking up on that sort of... I mean, really... Keith Richards oh. picking up his guitar, you know, I mean, a lot of these guys, that's their hero, you know. Exactly, you know. And just those songs, there's so much in For those sure. two, three-minute songs. I mean, just lyrically, they're so amusing, they're yeah. so visual, and great singer, fantastic guitarist, so, I mean, I, I, I would be... I could not leave Chuck Berry out. Um, going directly, I said Prince, another one of my favorites. I mean, the most unsung guitar hero. Oh even uh, he's gotten, you know, in 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 his passing, a little bit more uh, recognized for it. There's that one video where they're doing uh, George Harris mm-hmm. while my guitar gently weeps, and he oh. plays a blazing solo. But oh. just the most effortless, effortlessly cool guitarist, and such a catalog of music mm-hmm. and you know and he he you know is kind of a mixture of little richard mark bola you know because oh, yeah. he was like i'm not you don't even know what i am i'm not gay i'm not straight i'm not what i'm my, i'm an alien i'm my own thing and prince or not a uh, bowie i mean he kind of just was a hybrid of all sure. these people yeah and that's what was so intriguing about him you couldn't really you couldn't really put him into a box at all and, um, you know, the thing that's so great about, well, there's so much that was so great about him, but it didn't really dawn on me when I was younger, when I was buying these records. But when you look back now, I mean, his first album came out in 78 and he was 17. If you look at the back of it, it says, written, produced, played, engineered, everything by Prince. Yeah. The guy was 17. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's not his best album. I mean, it's his debut. Still has a lot he, of really good He was a genius. I mean, literally a genius. Who does that? Yeah. You know? Just a singular vision, a a, a kind of this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think he people could tell him anything. He's no. like, this is the way that this is happening. 
there, I don't know if this is true, and I heard this in kind of a sour note to end on Prince, but someone said that, t- that his addiction to pills was a result of him ruining his hips from dancing and, and playing in high heel boots for I so read long. That. I have read I, that. I don't know if that's true, but that what a what a bizarre kind of culmination of I know his hips and his yeah, knees yeah, supposedly in just bad wrecked. Shape. There's the Saturday Night Live video that uh, you couldn't for 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 whatever reason I guess SNL owns so much of their musical mm-hmm. content, so it's very hard to watch it yes. except for on their terms. But I remember around the time he passed, they released. Uh, uh, video when he played on, I think it was the only time he ever played on mm-hmm. there. And he comes out in a g-string, knee-high boots, a trench coat, and he's all over that stage. And I was like, that hurts just watching him, you know. know. And I know he's a smaller guy, but still, I mean, Very. anyway, so diminutive, but yeah, such a, such a giant. big personality. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that outfit. That's when uh, when the Stones uh, toured for Tattoo U in '81. They singled him out and they said, "Hey, we want you to open these shows because they were so crazy about him." And think about it, 1981 at a stadium, people are there to see the Stones, and this little guy walks oh, out in a trench little black guy, yeah. I mean, he got booed pretty severely. Oh, for sure. They just had the Hells Angels killing folks in their crowd <laughs> not too many years before that. So. here comes Prince. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that was a huge, you know, that, that was a blow to his ego. But I think it just made him stronger, because then he came out and, you know, released. All these guys, and it's funny, a lot of them are African-American, you yeah. know. I'm going to, I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to make you, I'm going to take what you fear most and I'm going to turn it up and make you like me because of it. You know, exactly. Yeah. People like us love them even more, but then the people who hate them hate them even more. Yeah. I, I always find that concept so intriguing when somebody's so vilified because you have people who love them as much as people hate them. And, that, that, I always find that intriguing. That's somebody like Madonna like that is like that to me. People Some in people, office these days. Exactly. <laughs> you know, know? Exactly. in a lot of ways. You know, it's like what makes people have such polar opposite reactions sure. to this individual. But, um, next, I said Bob Dylan. I mean, just... He's like a deity. I mean, he yeah. kind of, you know, weird as hell, still doing it. He just put out a record, or he's got one coming out yeah, here soon. I went and saw him when he played here at the fairgrounds with uh, Wilco and uh-huh. My Morning Jacket. And I, I perceive this, I don't know if it's true, but it looked like his hands were so arthritic that he can't play guitar anymore. Yeah, he plays a lot of keyboard. He played a lot of keyboard and a piano, but, I mean, he looked like James Coburn. I don't know if you ever saw James <laughs> Coburn's hands at the end of his career, just, you know, just frozen with, with uh, what do you call it? Uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, you're... Some... I, I, I think this COVID is doing something to my brain, know, but uh, arthritis. Thank you. That's what yeah, I was, was looking say, for. Yeah, yeah. But he 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 wasn't playing guitar, but still, just uh, the lyrics, the history, the the. I mean, and he's just lived through so many huge events and kind of been a commentator mm-hmm. on those events. So well, the great thing about well, there's so many great things about Dylan, but one of the things that I love is, um, and I don't know if this is gonna if I'm gonna verbalize this correctly, but you really don't have any idea where he's coming from or what he's going to do. I think Morrissey does that now to an extent, but it doesn't, it's not as clever about it. But for example, you know, I know for a lot, there was a time there where Dylan was doing Victoria's Secret commercials. Yeah. And people were so appalled. I'm like, it's Bob Dylan. Yeah. If you think that you're going to predict his next move, yeah. you have no idea what he's about. Didn't he do a couple gospel albums? Yeah. Or like, yeah, I mean, like just... Which got slagged sl- when yeah, they came out. Yeah, yeah. Those are fantastic. Oh, for albums sure. What's too. Planet Wave? Planet Waves was one that I've just recently mm-hmm. come across. That I wasn't even, you know, it weren't the top tier albums that you're always told to listen to. It's a great album. It's a great album. Yeah, fantastic album, overlooked album. 
Um, ironically, that was the number one album for him, but it, it got reviewed really harshly. But some great stuff on there. I, I love that record. But um, Dylan is just, I mean, he's just an anomaly, and that's part of the reason why I've been so intrigued with him. He's not boring, years. never boring. Never. Yeah. Um, I went Years ago, I went and saw him up in Orlando at the, um, the Hard Rock, and I went with a good friend of mine who's a huge Dylan fan. And we were, um, you know, we were watching the show. And this, my friend is very quiet. He's kind of uh, not, not, not very vocal. But um, about three songs into it, he leaned over to speak. And I was surprised. He said, hey, Gabe, you know, I'm a, you know I'm a pretty huge Dylan fan, right? And I said, absolutely. He goes, have you recognized a single song he's done yet? Yeah, yeah. And I said, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. And we had a good laugh about yeah. it. But that's just Dylan. That's his thing, yeah. yeah. I, I went to, not to compare Iron and Wine to Dylan, but Ooh. I went and saw Iron and Wine at the Tampa Theater when they came a year or two ago. And uh, people I was with, he didn't play one of the songs the way that they're recorded. They right. were all different arrangements and everything else. And it turned a lot of people off. I, I still love the show, but not the same thing, but a similar type thing, you know. But These, similar, yeah. yeah. That, that's Dylan and Neil Young. If you Neil think, Young, I was waiting for. If you think Is he on the list or are you just... He was not. Okay. Because Neil Young's got the disco album or whatever, the, yeah. the electronic music. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but for Dylan and Neil Young, who I've both seen numerous times... If you think you you know what you're going to get at that show, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to be you're sorely mistaken. And they both have this thing where, in some ways, I don't know if I'm saying this the way I mean it, but the 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 fans or the audience are the enemies. It's yeah. like not the enemies, but you're, they're going to challenge you. They're not going to give you what you want. You know, exactly. I know Radiohead got tons of shit for that Ooh. after uh, OK Computer when they started coming out with their more esoteric. You know, it's like, we're not going to play rock music for you anymore. We're right. going to play this out of the other. And it's your music. You do what you want with it. And I guess people can take it or leave it. But well, we have choices. We yeah. can either stop following them or we can dig deeper. Right. I mean, that's a great thing. Nobody's forcing us to go buy every Radiohead record and continue to support them. If you don't want to support them, you don't have to. Right. But I think what those guys do when they go off into those tangents, it just, it just endears them even more to the people who love them for being bold enough to do what they right. do rather than following in any kind There's of... There's a legitimacy that you have to appreciate exactly. whether you can get behind the music or not. You know, I don't want Dylan to put out the same record year after year. Right. That would that would be crushing for yeah. me. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Dylan for sure. We already talked about him, but I said Bowie. Um, you know, again, just in so many ways, not just, you know, as far as um, fashion, as far as, um, no pun intended... As far as, you know, the look, the attitude, the whole mystique, I mean, nobody did it better than him. I read a great quote from him. He said, you know, the reason that he doesn't, the, the way that he prevents it from, you know, getting stale is that he's playing a character, you know, and we all... They know, are. They're chapters in a, yeah, the Thin White to. Duke, uh, Ziggy Stardust. Uh, you have to. The Berlin Trilogy, you know, all exactly. these different little chapters in his book are so different. I mean, if you go out there and you, you know, you put your dirty laundry out there and you talk about your divorce, I mean, yeah, some people have done it and divorce is a great topic to make. Well, what Max's career was exactly. built on marital discord. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. but, but how much easier is it to, not easy in a sense that it's a way out, but how much more um, simple does it make it for you to kind of get into character 
as if you're an actor in a movie and say, this is what I'm doing now. This is who I'm portraying. Which really? is something that I recently learned because I had not, oh, I had always just assumed it was more autobiographical, but uh, Springsteen. Well, that's my next. Question. Okay, well, good. <laughs> uh, again, you know, you hear about, I, I was just joking with uh, my buddy the other day about someone, uh, what was it, cruising the palaces of whatever on a suicide machine. Mm -hmm. You hear this and it's like, he was constantly running from mob bosses in New Jersey and, you know, on the boardwalk getting in fistfights and losing it. And it's like, none of that stuff was true. Exactly. It was all what he saw, maybe, or bits and pieces of what he saw in the world, but none of it was him. But, but, what, but what a great, um, but what a, what a great uh, writer. In a, uh, He's literally like Walt Whitman or, yeah. or Mark Twain with, the, you know, good guitar chops. Without, without a doubt. And I saved him for last. He's... I don't know if you know this, but he's my all-time favorite artist ever, yeah. ever, ever. He's the guy I've seen the most in concert. He's the only guy who I would, you know, I love a lot of music and I love a lot of bands. And I, you know, I thrive on going to see them as much as possible. But Bruce, I can say, is really the only person who I can go see multiple times on a tour and really never get bored because no two shows are alike. He mixes up the set list night after night after night, which is not easy to do. Um, every show has its own kind of vibe and personality. They were like revivals. They were like, yeah, I mean, totally. four-hour marathon revivals that you go through every emotion. And I've never even seen him live. But I've watched a lot of his shows, you know, live online. And especially, I, I, I haven't seen much with uh, Clemens' son, mm -hmm. which is kind of cool yeah. that he, yeah. he got to fill in that slot. But, I mean, just... The sax and, and the rock music and, you know, uh, yeah, just just amazing music, but just really kind of takes you on a roller coaster. Totally. Yeah. He just, to me, embodied what, um, to me, what the experience of feeling and living rock and roll was about. Because, you know, he, yeah, he was doing these marathon shows and everybody, you know, I think... Uh, uh, who was it? It was a comedian who had a great line. He said he took a date to a Bruce Springsteen show. He's like, Bruce, I love you, but come on. Let's yeah, go. <laughs> let's go. Let's wrap it up. Dave Foley. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, that, that all that mystique and that myth, is, mythology has followed him. But it, it, it's, it's just, it's taking all your best experiences and all your favorite, these guys that I'm mentioning in these bands, taking all of that and putting it into this, um, and I don't mean this in a contrived way, but putting it into this package that kind of hits on all cylinders. Yeah. You know, to me, I always think of him as like the, the, the combination of Otis Redding and Bob Dylan. Yeah. You know, it's kind of what he is. He's like this dynamic showman, but with, you know... The him. mind of Dylan. Exactly, yeah, yeah, you know? for sure. But with a lot of fun running through it. And, I mean, he's, he's to me, it's just... To me, nobody's ever going to do it the way he does it, you know? And for me, I, I, I just posted this lyric a, a while ago. For, I, I love Darkness on the Edge of Town. I love uh, Atlantic City, but mm -hmm. the river. Oh, yeah. Something about that song, and I watched that documentary on the making of that album, yeah. but uh, is, was it a dream something that doesn't come true or maybe something worse? Mm -hmm. It's it just, just such a getting to the heart of the American dream or the the, faca the hollow facade of the American dream. Totally. What, what you think your life is going to be and what it turns out being. And so much of his musical content is really kind oh. of focused on, you know, unfulfilled dreams. And Well, one of his greatest gifts is being able to, and the line that you just referenced is a perfect example. He has an ability to say so much in such a short, compact the economy lyric. of, oh, for sure. I mean, you can take that lyric and it can mean something totally different to you than it does to me. 
But nonetheless, we're, we're thinking about it. Right. We're not just, you know, flipping In the one ear and out the other, you know? yeah. And that, to me, is it's a true gift that he has. And it's weird, because when I grew up, not a lot of kids my age um, were really into him. I mean, I think I could Well, how old are you? You're, you're a little bit older than I am. I'm 52. Okay, so I'm, I'll be 45 this year. Yeah. And my entry point was born in the USA, which right. is like... Madonna, Michael J. Exactly. That was that was how he was positioned. So it was after the fact that I said, "Wait a second, there's this whole other Bruce Springsteen than this pop guy that they're trying to sell me." You exactly. Know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, people thought I was crazy because in high school, you know, for me it was just uh, it was Bruce, it was Billy Idol, it was The Clash, it was U2, but Bruce was always there. Yeah. No matter you know what, and they were like, "How can you like this guy?" It's too hard to explain. Well, but now, I mean, he sold out Broadway for like two years. I mean, his it's beyond argument. I mean, it's there's not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still people who. Well, there's people who are going to try, but they're wrong. So I, they're just. I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree. So, so, anyway. so he, well, I'm glad I didn't do mine because we would be here for four more hours. So you're going to have to come back, and we're going to have to go through through my bands and my individuals. I would but love that. I said it to you off air and I'll say it to you on air and I meet it. You're in the neighborhood. I would love it if you made use of this studio. No strings attached at all. You have so much great information and so much great content that I think is such a good counterpoint to all the bullshit that we have to read every day about what's going on in the world and politics and all this other stuff. There's so much more to our world than this darkness. There is this light and you're a purveyor of that light Thank you. with your, your love of music, your discussion of music. And it's so near and dear to my heart you can come in and I'll leave the room or I'll sit here and I'll just be an audience and ask you <laughs> questions. But anytime you want to come in, if you want to put on a show, please do so. Thank the you. door's always open. That. All right. Thank you so much, Gabe, for coming by. Thank I really you. enjoyed this. I could do this for hours on yes. end. Thank All you. right. This Take care. A thrill. Thank All you. right. Thank you, sir. Thank you.